Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed and with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Please pray with me. Father, it is my prayer that no one leaves this room today without believing this passage. That no one who's hearing this, wherever they're hearing it, would walk away without believing what you've written here. Trusting in the one to whom these very words point. To the only one who pays for sin. Oh Lord, if you should count iniquity, oh Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you would be feared, that you would be revered, that you would be adored, that you would be worshipped, that you would be praised, that you would be clung to, that you would be trusted in. So Father, it's our prayer that you would not just speak to us through these words, but reveal the glory of your son Jesus to us through these words. Expose the utter worthlessness of our self-righteous deeds and make us desperate and dependent to come to you by faith and faith alone. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I was watching a television interview with a couple who just won a state lottery. I don't know what state, some state lottery, somewhere around $20 million. And on several occasions during this interview, the husband and wife would say, you know, we really are blessed in reference to the enormous sum of money that was coming their way. We've all heard sort of elite athletes sort of attribute their victories to being blessed or occasional Oscar winners to calling their award a blessing from God. Just to think how often if we attribute a new job, a good health, a nice house, a great vacation, a raise at work, to being blessed by God. Just take a quick scan of Etsy or Instagram. Just go peruse Hobby Lobby even today. 
You'll find hundreds of t-shirts, dozens of plaques and posters and paintings and all of them screaming the word blessed. So perhaps we are trying to give God the proper credit for the pleasant outcomes of our lives. God does give good gifts. A job is a gift. Marriage is a gift from the Lord. Children are gifts from the Lord. A healthy body is a gift. But should these gifts become the means by which we measure the blessedness of our lives? And therefore, the means by which we measure the cursedness of our lives? Because what if we're jobless? What if we're poor? What if we're unmarried? What if we're childless? What if we're sick? What if we're dying of cancer? Would we still use the word blessed? Even just this morning, everything, I was trying to get out of the house. I was so late. I was trying to find a straw for my water mug. We've got 500 straws in our house and not one fit this mug. And I'm trying to turn out, I'm filling it with water. I've got my coffee in another hand, my backpack, and it flies off my shoulder, hits the water, shoots the water all over the counter. I drop my coffee mug. It slams to the ground, and through the little slot where you drink it from, this stream of coffee shoots up into the air like slow motion. I watch it come up and just lands on my jacket, this jacket. Just without even thinking, it's, Lord, you're against me. How quickly we forget what blessedness is. How quickly we forget what it means for the Lord to be for us. What does it mean to be blessed? Among all the vital questions the Word of God sets out to answer, this is surely one of them. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man who. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to begin one of his major part of his preaching ministry in Matthew 5 by proclaiming, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. Even after Jesus cast out a demon from a mute man, then started teaching about his kingdom in Luke 11, listen to what it says. And a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Consider that for a minute. A woman cries out from the crowd to Jesus, how blessed be your mom. And Jesus goes, not really. No, how blessed is the one who has been given the faith to believe and obey my word. How does that land on a first century Jewish audience? He does not want us to misunderstand what true blessing is. So once you ask yourself the question, do you count yourself blessed? And even more importantly, why? That really is the key question for us today. And Psalm 32 gives us one of the greatest answers to that question in the whole Bible. And rightly are these words composed as a psalm, a poem, a prayer, a hymn. Because the truth it's going to deliver is meant to stir our hearts to faith and to gladness and to rejoicing. Psalm 32 is going to offer one of the deepest, highest most immovable measures of blessing any of us will either know or fathom. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. 
whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. True blessedness is forgiveness. It's the main point of this psalm. He's going to take the rest of the psalm to explain it, give evidence for it. True blessedness is forgiveness. And when David says blessed, he's not merely saying happy. He's referring to a comprehensive soul well-being. He's saying, oh, how graciously and completely has the Lord lavished his goodness upon this person. And so notice that it's not the rich who are counted blessed, not the healthy, not the powerful, not the physically attractive, not the famous, but the forgiven. And so if you're a forgiven by God person, and David's saying you're, you're an infinitely blessed person, which begs the question, forgiven of what? Well, verse 1, transgression. The word that means crossing a forbidden line, being or doing what God expressly forbids that we be or do. Sin, verse 1 which means to miss or to fall short of a mark or a perfect standard, to fail to be or do what God expressly commands. Iniquity, verse 2, which refers to moral wickedness or injustice, the perversion of what God calls holy. Deceit or guile, which refers to sort of an impure, twisted, dishonest, crooked condition of heart. So with those four words, David is labeling our deepest problem as human beings. He's sort of bringing all the evidence to bear and surrounding us with it, the kind of evidence that condemns each and every one of us. For we've all transgressed the lines of God's law. He says, okay, don't covet. And we cross the line to covet. We've all missed the mark of his glory. He says, okay, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the time, perfectly, without fail. And we fall short. We've all corrupted what he declares holy, hidden our sins in deceit. Because the man who wrote this psalm also wrote Psalm 51.5 where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's like this wasn't just something I someday did. It's how I came into the world. It's who I am apart from grace. In fact, an honest look at ourselves should cause us to agree with what the scripture declares in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I certainly know this about myself. My parents never had to teach me how to lie. I just lied. They never taught me how to lust. I just did. Society didn't teach me or encourage me to steal. I just stole. They didn't teach me to establish a righteousness of my own. I just tried every day. The Lord tells me to be humble, but I'm proud. The Lord tells me to be pure, but I'm impure. The Lord tells me to trust him, but I often distrust him. He says, don't covet, and yet I covet. Sinful anger, defensiveness, stinginess, escapism, selfishness, it just oozes out. I am a transgressor, a sinner. I wonder, do you know this about yourself? 
I'm sure you do. When you really slow down, when you really think honestly about it, the stuff you think, the stuff you feel, the stuff you do, the attitudes you carry, the idols you have served, the bitterness, the greed, the vindictiveness, the gossip, the slander, the blatant lies, the white lies, the running to food, to porn, to drugs, to social media, to whatever escape, whether bad things you run to or good things you run to for wrong reasons. The world wants you to see yourself first and foremost as innocent, as good, as a victim, as mentally ill, as poorly parented, as anything but a self-willed, self-righteous, guilty sinner before a holy God. The world wants you to think that you shouldn't think that way about yourself or anybody else. The devil wants us even to stay blind to our sin or even once we see it to just simply condemn us in it without hope. But hopefully you see it, right? Luke 18, 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what he says. He saw the problem clearly, not simply that he was a sinner in a vacuum, but a sinner in a divine throne room under the wrath of God, a sinner who deserves judgment, a sinner in need of mercy. That's what makes our condition so dreadful is not that our sin is against mere laws of the universe or social customs or personal preferences or moral codes or religious rules or even the court of public opinion but against God, who created the universe, who gives us breath, who reigns in heaven, whose law is perfect, whose worth is infinite, who dwells in unapproachable light. Deuteronomy 4, your God is a consuming fire. So at the end of the day, you don't need to worry about what anyone else thinks about you. Because in the presence of God, there is nothing less relevant than what everybody else thinks about you. Only the judgment of the Lord will matter. And if you put yourself there for a moment, as Isaiah was there in Isaiah 6, standing before the Lord God Almighty on his throne, he's high, he's lifted up, angels just flying around, crying out, holy, 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 the foundations of the temple tremble. It all begins to fill with smoke. His eyes peering straight at you. You, a transgressor, a sinner, 
the long list of iniquities and deceits just written in these books that are there. So what in that moment will you consider true blessedness? What are the words you'll long to hear? You not want to hear what Jesus said to the woman who was weeping at his feet in Luke 7? Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Your transgressions have been borne away. That's what forgiven means. As far as the east is from the west. Pardoned because a payment has been made on your behalf. Your sin covered. Your guilt covered. Your uncleanness covered. Your shame covered. Your iniquity not imputed to you, not counted to you. All your deceit and impurity cleansed from you so that your heart, your life is just declared righteous by God, justified, forgiven. That's what you'll want, right? That's what David treasures. That's what he wants us to treasure. And this is not theoretical for him. I mean, he experienced it personally. He tells us about it. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, there was a time when David tried to hide his sin from God, when he deceived himself and he deceived others about his true sort of spiritual condition. And just the weight of conviction kept mounting day after day. That many commentators believe that David is remembering back to that period of time around 2 Samuel 11, following his adultery with Bathsheba and then his murder of her husband Uriah. So she'd become pregnant by their adultery. And so in order to cover up that pregnancy, he arranged for the murder of her husband Uriah and then took her as a wife so that it could be concealed. And over a year went by before God's going to send Nathan the prophet. Over a year went by when this is just stewing in David, burdening his conscience. The hand of the Lord heavy upon him pressing him, confess, repent, confess, repent, yet he remains silent. He buries him. So what sins are you carrying and refusing to confess to the Lord? Maybe even refusing to confess to some around you. So tempting to hide it, isn't it? We're afraid of what the Lord will do, of what people will do the hit that our reputation will take, our standing in our community, our standing in the church. Or maybe we think we can beat it on our own. We just need more time. We'll tell ourselves that, right? Just more time. Even though we're like in the middle of the Pacific without any raft, trying to swim to California, and we think we just need more time. Well, more time means die. Or the cancer patient stage four, leukemia, I just need more time to beat it. We convince ourselves it's not a big deal, maybe. It's not hurting anybody. It's not really that bad. Or we think the opposite. It's so bad, we've gone too far. We're out of reach. There's no way the Lord could forgive this. He can't possibly forgive this. 
And so we keep silent. We waste away. So is the hand of the Lord heavy on you this morning? Is your sleep fleeting? Is your conscience burning? Do you just sit here or even walk around terrified that any day it'll get out? The game will be up. Well, praise God, we don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. David tells us in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's amazing how amazing grace is. It's why the Christian hymn book is so thick. And the hymn books of every other religion on the world, added up together, come nowhere near it. Because nobody wants to sing about their good works, not really. But grace, that makes you sing. It's offensive to the proud. Grace is offensive to the self-righteous, but it's glorious to the humble, to the weak, to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn their wretchedness. Luke 5, verse 29, and Levi, a tax collector, which was really a symbol in Jesus' day of, of the most rejected, worst, sinful of the nation. This tax collector made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so are you a great sinner? Jesus is a great savior. Are your iniquities deep? His grace is deeper. Because none of us are saved by the smallness of our sins. We're saved by the greatness of God's grace. Notice even the simplicity of his words. He just acknowledges his sins to the Lord. He just stopped trying to cover them on his own. As we just read in Romans 4, he didn't sort of work his way there. He didn't clean up and then come. He just came, filthy, dirty, to receive grace in his time of need. There's a great contrast here between this verse and verse 1. That when the Lord covers your sin... It's covered. When you try to cover your sin, it ain't covered. Adam and Eve learned this. You start sewing a bunch of fig leaves together, turn them into clothes and putting them on. How does that feel after about eight hours in dried fig leaves? Start shriveling up. You realize, oh, this doesn't cover as much as I thought. Gets pretty itchy. Gets pretty uncomfortable. And then tomorrow morning, you got to do it again. Next day, you got to do it again. And then all of a sudden, God shows up in the garden. And you realize, okay, this, these fig leaves don't work. I better find a big tree. <laughs> then even a big tree won't cover you. But when the Lord covers you, you're covered. So David confesses his wrongdoing to the Lord, which means he agreed with God that he was a sinner, as God had said. That's what confession means. Confession means agreement. And so when we confess our sins to the Lord, we're not bringing him new information. Never will you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Does he go, oh, really? 
I didn't know. He goes, no, I, I know. It's my grace that helped you see it. It's my grace that brought you here to confess it. It's like when you get that news from the oncologist that he's got something to show you on the x-rays. Or she calls you to come into the office because there's just cancer all through your body. You sit there on the table and the x-rays are lined up on the wall and just shows you all the cancer cells just all through your body. And you agree with the physician, you have cancer. You're not giving the physician new information. You're not only now starting to have cancer. You're only now starting to admit it. You're finally aligning yourself with what is true, with what is real, and finally seeking the treatment you desperately need. Well, if we would confess our cancer to a physician who has no power to heal us, only to treat us, only to delay our death, then how much more should we confess our sin to the Lord who promises and has power to heal us? At the end of verse 5, David's going to make one of the most glorious statements in the whole Bible. After confessing his transgressions to the Lord, it says, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Young people, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, even old people, I would encourage you, set your heart to spend your entire life seeking, grasping, clinging to this grace. Your career may not work out so great. You may not finish school so well. You may not go on to accomplish all the great things you think you could or should. But if you find grace, you found everything. If you find grace, then the riches that are yours are beyond anything this world will ever offer. What does it profit a man if he should inherit the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And yet what if you were to gain the riches of grace but yet lose everything else? What strength this is to the weary soul. You think what hope this is to the despairing heart that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Which to me begs the question, how is that possible? How can a holy, righteous God just forgive and cleanse a sinner? How can he, just, how can he reconcile me, adopt me, Take me as his child. Forgive me. Well, David is looking forward to a day when God the Father will send his Messiah into the world. He's looking forward to that day. When Jesus Christ, the righteous, will come. Who himself would live his entire life without transgression, without sin, without iniquity, without deceit. And then Jesus would die upon the cross in David's place absorb God's wrath in David's place, go to the grave to suffer the fate David deserved, and then rise from the grave on the third day to conquer that very sin and death that David was bound in. Then that Savior would make that available to all who would repent of their sin and trust in him. That's what David is looking toward. That's what he's banking on. How blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and borne away by the finished work of Christ on the cross. How blessed is the one whose sin is covered, washed away, atoned for by his blood. 
How blessed is the one whose iniquity is not counted against him or her because it's counted against Jesus instead. How blessed is the one who has the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, counted to them. How blessed is the one who acknowledges their sin, confesses it to the Lord, and by faith draws near to the throne of grace and confidence. When we look back through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to Psalm 32, that's what we're meant to see. That's how we're meant to hear it, fulfilled in Jesus. And it should move us to respond. We're not meant to listen to words like that and then do nothing. We see it in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I love how the Bible doesn't just give you the truth, it applies it for you. And the application is, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So there's an application here for anyone who's listening, who's never grieved their sin, you've never confessed your sin to the Lord, you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, This is calling you, pray to him now. Turn from your sin now. Look to Christ now and live. And perhaps even your life has been a total disaster to this point, riddled with failures, riddled with broken relationships. Your sin has torpedoed your job. It's torpedoed your marriage. It's torpedoed your relationship with your parents, your relationships with your kids. It's torpedoed your health your life, or maybe you have it all. Maybe nothing looks torpedoed. You've just, you've accomplished everything and you're still miserable in your sinful condition. Offer a prayer to him. He can be found. He is a gracious God. Luke 23, verse 39, we learn that Jesus was actually crucified between two criminals. It says, one of the criminals railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's incredible. His whole life wasted in transgression. Nothing good to show for himself. Family long gone. Friends long gone. Earthly life fading away. A criminal caught, hanged. Yet he calls upon Jesus in a time where he may be found and he's forgiven. covered, iniquity not imputed to him. And if he'd waited just a little while longer, it would have been too late. Because in the rush of great waters, in the rush of the judgment of God, it's too late. If you're wading upstream toward a dam and then that dam breaks and all the water behind it starts rushing to you, you're not going to make any more progress. You're going backwards. You will be swept away. That's the image David has. Call on him in a day when he can be found. Call on him before Jesus shows up again, 
but this time not to pay for sin, but to judge. There's also another application to us who are already born again, already in Christ, united to his life, death, and resurrection, and yet playing with sin, nursing iniquity, trying to cling to Jesus and the world at the same time, thinking that you can feed sort of the lion of sin in your life and the lion of Christ and, and that go okay. Well, the lesson is run back to Christ in faith. Cry out to Christ in faith. Confess your sin to him. He will forgive you. It may also mean get other members of the body of Christ around you to confess that sin to so that they may pray for you, that you may be healed. That godliness, even according to these verses, it's not depending upon your greatness, but depending upon God's graciousness. You see that? What do the godly do? They don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. The godly don't sort of wash up and then come. The godly call upon God and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be Godward, godly. It's that we depend upon the graciousness of God. Every transgression you've ever committed, are committing, will commit, paid for by him. His body crucified as a substitute for you. His blood spilled as a payment for your sin. And because of it, we can just keep coming to him, confessing to him, clinging to him, which is what David's going to turn to in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Not you were a hiding place for me. You are a hiding place for me. Present tense. Present tense, you preserve me. Present tense, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. That the Lord is David's continual shelter, continual refuge, continual tower from the punishment that he deserves. In other words, we don't believe the gospel, then move on. We don't sort of believe Christ and then move on. We camp on gospel. We cling to Christ. We just keep walking with him by faith. We abide in him. And not because we'll lose him, but because we won't lose him. Because he's the most precious, beautiful prize that we've received. So the gospel really is a great irony when you think about it, when you look at these verses. Namely, Jesus Christ is the hiding place God provides you from himself. Think about that a minute. Always think about God hide me from sickness. Hide me from poverty. Hide me from loneliness. Hide me from, and yes, the Lord does in fact shelter us often from those kinds of storms. But there is a storm of all storms. A storm above all storms. And that is the wrath and judgment of God. And, and he is our hiding place from that. That God delivers you from his justice by pouring out all his justice and his wrath upon Jesus. Jesus shelters you from his own wrath by absorbing it on your behalf. And because of this, he never leaves us, never forsakes us. Which is what we see in verse 8, where God now begins to speak to David in these two verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, 
or it will not stay near to you. So after all that David is going to say in verses 1 through 7, God replies in verses 8 and 9. Firstly, with a promise, and then with his warning. The promise is, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to lead you. The warning is, stay close. Don't go astray. If you want to see a funny thing, just watch somebody trying to reason with a donkey. Or just get on the back of your horse or donkey and then say, all right, uh, go left. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to obey you. They're not going to heed your word until you stick something in their mouth that painfully moves them from left to right. So what God is saying that if you're in Christ, if your sins are forgiven, if you're one of those counted among the blessed, don't be proud or like a stubborn mule so that his heavy hand has to constantly be upon you for you to move, but rather willingly stay close to him, willingly abide in him, willingly abide in his word, willingly dwell among his people, be constant in prayer, be joyful in prayer, willingly confess our sin both to one another and to him. And again, not so that he will love and care for us, but because he loves and cares for us. We see that in verse 10, that many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That many are the sorrows of the wicked because they keep walking in their sin without repentance, without Christ, without forgiveness, without hope. When you think about it, we all know sorrows. We all know pain. And some of our sorrows are very great. But David is here making the point that the very greatest of sorrows, the deepest of sorrows, the sorrows from which we never recover, come from remaining in sin, come from being estranged from the Lord, come from being under his wrath, refusing to trust him for salvation. Those are the sorrows that are real sorrows. Getting COVID, though painful, is not a real sorrow. It's one of my prayers. Lord, I pray the world would fear you more than COVID. Pray the Lord would take even greater steps to protect themselves from sin and find refuge in Christ from sin than even from COVID. Because what's the numbers now, COVID, the mortality rate, like under 4%? Well, sin has a 100% mortality rate. And not just your body your soul. That's the great sorrow that this psalm is talking about. That's the great sorrow that the gospel is seeking to free us from, protect us from. The sorrows of the wicked are many. Yet in contrast, we who renounce our self-righteousness, who repent of our sin, who look to Christ for atonement, are surrounded day and night, month after month, year after year, by the steadfast love of the Lord. A love that is not based on your performance, but his character. It's not based on how well you're keeping up, but his faithfulness. It was his steadfast love that opened our eyes to our sin to begin with. His steadfast love that brought us to repentance. His steadfast love that opened our eyes to Christ. His steadfast love that showed us the glory of redeeming grace. And it's his steadfast love that continues to surround us 
continues to comfort us, continues to ensure our arrival with him in glory. Which is why David's going to close this psalm in worship. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the unavoidable conclusion for all whose transgressions are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Be glad in the Lord, for he has forgiven you. Rejoice, all you saints, for Jesus has covered your iniquity and gives you his righteousness instead. Shout for joy, for the God of grace has given you a heart to believe, an upright heart, a new heart, able to stand before him without shame or blemish, without spot or wrinkle. And so do you consider yourself blessed? I really pray you do. But not because the Lord helped you lose 35 pounds or buy a Mercedes or reach retirement or graduate with straight A's or avoid COVID. Count yourself blessed, infinitely blessed for no other reason than your sins are forgiven. That you are in Christ. That your soul is secure. So by all means, still wear your blessed t-shirt. Hang all your blessed decor all over your living room. Post your, you know, hashtag blessed all over the internet. But please, please, please understand what it means. And please explain it. That you, a wretched sinner, have been forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Christ. That's why you count yourself blessed. That Jesus is your hiding place. That he preserves you from eternal trouble. That he delivers you from judgment. That his steadfast love surrounds you and always will until you stand with him in paradise. And so let us be glad and rejoice and shout for joy in this salvation and take that news to the very ends of the world. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, as we began in prayer, so we close that you would help us be believing, not unbelieving. That you would help us look to Christ and live. That any here who have never turned from their sin, repented and trusted in him, that your spirit would cause them to do that very thing now. For all of us here, that we would keep running to Christ, seeking refuge in Christ, that we would take comfort, that your steadfast love surrounds us, that we would count ourselves blessed because we are forgiven. Lord, make us the most unfazed, unbothered, unanxious, most peaceful, most joyful people in all the world because we are truly the most blessed in all the world because we are those who have received your grace in Christ. Help us remember. It's in his name we pray. Amen.